right, friends, welcome to the show. Greg Kokel here, and the show is Stand to Reason. And a couple of weeks ago, I um, shared some thoughts about a problem. It was a question that was asked me, and I had, had actually not heard the question before, had to think about it. And uh, that was uh, what happens when you have a family that's Christian and you have children and they're growing up and the father then deconverts and becomes an atheist and how you handle that with the kids. So I had to work that out because I'd never thought of that one before. And so I called other members of my team and they were helpful, okay, which means lots of times I kind of get stumped. I get stuck on an issue. And so I've got a very deep bench that I can draw from, and I want to do that as we start out today because I have another question um, that was that actually was spurred as a result of or was a the question came up as a result of my comments last week regarding the discussion about Alistair Begg's comment about attending a same sex wedding. And uh, and I'm thinking about the question, and I thought, I don't know how to answer this. So I called my colleague, Alan Schleeman, uh, my go-to guy for these, especially for these kinds of questions, and uh, and he had some good insight. So I asked him to be on. Alan, I'm, I'm kind of drawing from my deep bench right now. Glad you've joined me here to help me out on this one. Well, when uh, Greg Kokel calls, uh, I'm always going to answer, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's my pleasure to be on the show here with you. Okay, so this is one of those uh, questions of the odd circumstances that are coming up because we're facing all kinds of odd things in our culture with transgender and with uh, same-sex marriages and uh, deconstruction. That was a couple of weeks ago. So here's the question. Let me read it to you, and then I'll just let you kind of pick up on that and explain your best wisdom regarding this, I think, challenging situation. The question is, in my women's Bible study, the woman next to me asked the group what to say to a person who is married to a man who now decides to become a woman. Okay, so that would be a transgender female married to a man who is transgender, wants to become a woman. She says all of us were dumbstruck. No, no, no kidding. How does one handle that situation, especially if the wife is a Christian? Your yeah, turn. that's. A, <laughs> oh, do I have to answer it now? <laughs> um, yeah. Th so this is a tough question, and um, over the years, uh, my my wife and I have had to wrestle with um, not exactly that particular question, but similar kinds of things where. We have friends and family mm -hmm. who identify as gay or lesbian, and as a result, we've had to you know, interact with them, and we have to make decisions sometimes on the fly, and sometimes just over years of, of working through these questions, we've developed principles. And so one of, the, one of the principles that I have developed as a result of all that experience is a principle that I think could weigh in on this particular question. Mm -hmm. Now, the principle was originally developed... Uh, in the context of just people who identify as gay or lesbian. But I think it can apply in this instance as well. Okay. So let me first just tell you the principle and then give you a couple of examples of how it applies in sort of situations where you're just dealing with somebody who identifies as gay and lesbian. And then I think we can see how it would apply in this instance as well. Okay. And this principle is something that I teach and answers usually 99% of the questions that I get asked at an event where I'm speaking on this subject. And the questions go something like this. Alan, 
my brother identifies as gay and he said this to me, what should I say? Or, Alan, my friend is a lesbian and she's invited me to do this. What do I do? And this principle, I think, helps to answer 99% of these kinds of questions. And here's the principle. Treat a homosexual the same way you would treat a heterosexual in a morally comparable situation. Hmm. So treat a homosexual the same way you would treat a heterosexual in a morally comparable situation. Okay. In other words, ask the question, well, what would you do in a, sim in a morally comparable situation if the person you're interacting with wasn't homosexual but just a heterosexual? How would you handle that situation? Hmm. Whatever is the answer there, you could give the same answer or it would, be, it would be my answer to your question in the context of a situation where they're gay or lesbian. Mm -hmm. All right. So, for example, uh, you know, people say to me, Alan, hey, my friend invited me to go see um, the latest Marvel movie. OK. And my friend, my friend is gay and they invited me to go to go with them. Should I go? So my question to them is, well. What if the person that was inviting you to go see this movie was not identifying as gay, but they were a heterosexual, uh, but they they were engaged in some other kind of sexual sin, like they were sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend? And usually the response to me is, "Well, of course I'd go. Like, what's the big deal? They're just mm -hmm. you know they're just like a non-believer and they have they fornicate, but you know me going to the movies with them doesn't condone their fornication, right?" And my response is, okay, well, then apply that same answer to your situation with your friend who identifies as gay. Yeah, mm -hmm. go, go to the movie. Like going to a movie with a person who identifies as gay is not condoning their homosexuality. Right, right. right. Or sometimes I have um, uh, maybe an, an, uh, a couple who's married and has a, has a home and they say, hey, Alan, um, uh, we, we have a nephew who is, uh, in, lives uh, nearby because he's going to a college uh, and uh, he identifies as gay and has a has a boyfriend, and they they want to come over and stay at our house for the night. And we were kind of in this dilemma, like, well, what should we do? Should we let these two guys stay in the same room together? And so my question to them was, well, what would you do if your your son or this nephew was coming over and he had mm -hmm. a girlfriend? Okay, and and let's just say that you had suspicion that they were sleeping together or whatever, and. And they want to spend the night in your home in the same room. Would you would you allow that? And they're like, well, no. I'm like, well, why not? They're like, well, because we don't want to, you know, condone that kind of, you know, behavior, right. fornication between boyfriend and girlfriend. Make it, make it possible, abet that behavior by allowing it, them to – Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, well, then apply that same sort of answer to the same – to a situation where this nephew of yours identifies as gay and has a boyfriend, Right. I said, again, it, it, they're morally comparable situations. Both are sexual sin or involve sexual sin. So I think if I think if it's a comparable situation, you can mm -hmm. apply the same kind of answer in both cases. Mm -hmm. And this, so, by the way, just as an observation, this helps Christians to, to be consistent. And I guess the principle of consistency that you're using here to be consistent so it doesn't look like they're heaping extra scorn or blame on a gay mm -hmm. person simply because he or she is gay, but they're rather treating sin as sin and whatever they'd be comfortable allowing, whatever that happens to be, in one situation, they should be just as comfortable allowing 
in the morally comparable kind of circumstances that you just described. So if if you have a, a guy with his girlfriend that he's living with and you're comfortable having them both over for dinner, then you should also be comfortable having a guy with his boyfriend uh, his sexual consort that he's living with, who's they're gay, having them over for dinner as well. Sound right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, Greg. In fact, the point you just made here at the uh, this last point you just made is exactly one of the reasons why or how this idea, this principle developed. Because a lot of times I find Christians were creating new rules or special rules that only apply to men with men or women with women, mm-hmm. uh, but then they weren't being consistent when it came to, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend kind of situations. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who identify as, as LGBT would say, gosh, you guys are, you know, you're creating these new rules as if, as, as if, you know, homosexuality is the worst sin. Mm-hmm. And that's what was oftentimes communicated by virtue of the fact that maybe some parents wouldn't allow their son to bring over, um, you know, his, his gay lover. Uh, but they would allow a daughter to bring over her boyfriend, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they felt that there was this inconsistency. Mm-hmm. And so when you treat sexual sin consistently, then at least when a gay couple says, oh, well, you're not going to let us stay together in the same room. You could say, well, I wouldn't let my daughter stay in the same room with her boyfriend, right. you know, good. because I, because I think that's sexual sin yeah. and I don't want to abet that. Yeah. And that's so good. I'm, I'm, I'm not creating new rules just because, you're identifying as a homosexual. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have another question about that. And I understand what you're doing is illustrating the principle. So we had a clear Mm -hmm. take on what it is, and then you want to apply it to this other question. Okay. But I have one other question. It just occurred to me, and that has to do with PDAs, public displays of affection. I, I I guess I, I wouldn't feel uncomfortable if there was a cohabiting couple that came over for dinner and they were holding hands or hugging each other or maybe gave each other a kiss or something like that. All right. Well, that's 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 not doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. All right. Even though the relationship at its core is not right. But if they if if the same thing happened with a gay couple, I would feel very differently about it, very different about it. And the reason I'd feel very different about it is because of the kind the the, the, the sexual display, modest Actually, maybe a, a display of more physical affection, not sex, but it's still something that would make me and maybe others feel quite uncomfortable. Do you think that the there because of that difference, the comfort level of people around the 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 principle of consistency doesn't quite apply in the same way? Yeah, that's that was my first thought was. I- you know, again, I said the principle of consistency applies for a lot of situations, but yeah. it doesn't apply to every situation. Mm-hmm. And I think this would be an example where, yeah, maybe it would be different. Um, and in fact, um, I have made decisions and even given counsel to other people when it comes to public displays of affection in the home, especially when the home is a Christian family, they have young children, and they're concerned about what sort of messages or what right. – what that public display of affection is communicating to young kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think it's reasonable for uh, uh, somebody to say, Hey, look, you know, yeah, I'm, you're, I'm fine with you coming to my home, but I'm going to ask you to abide by these kinds of rules or standards or whatever they might be. Yeah. And that's just kind of a principle of politeness. It seems to me, courtesy, common courtesy. 
It is. Yeah. And I, although I'll say that in some cases it's been fine. Um, I know I've had some situations myself where I, I've, we've had to ask that and it's been fine. Um, but I'll, I'll admit that there's been some situations where the couple has not been okay with that. Wow. And they've complained and they've refused then to come over. Mm-hmm. And this goes to, uh, an article I actually wrote, um, I think it was last, it was last year, but it was about the question of to what degree do we need to accommodate mm-hmm. an LGBT person's request? And, and oftentimes this is on the website, right? Right now it is on the website. Yeah, yes. Okay. And it's oftentimes, I think we Christians are pressured to accommodate certain requests that violate our conscience in order to maintain the relationship. And this whole maintaining the relationships mm. is gets elevated to a, 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 a height that I think mm-hmm. is, or to a, to a level where it's, un, it's, Unfair. It's unjustified. And well, they see it as we don't great, need to make it the greatest goal in greatest all of humanity good, right. mm-hmm. to to maintain the relationship. Otherwise, you know, you're you're doing the Christian life wrong or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine to say, "Hey, look, uh, this this goes against my conscience. I can't go along with it. Will this potentially damage the relationship if I don't go along? Yeah, it might, and that's okay." I don't think we're called to maintain every relationship, no matter what the cost. Mm-hmm. I think fidelity to our conscience, to our biblical values, to God, and to to biblical ethics, I think um, needs to take priority. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we got the principle in place. A lot of examples. How would it apply in this very unusual circumstance, where a person is married to a member of the opposite sex, who begins to ideate as the opposite sex for them. So if a woman's married to a man and the man begins to uh, ideate as a woman and becomes mm-hmm. transgender um, or vice versa or whatever, now what? Yeah. <laughs> Especially well, if there's a Christian involved here. Right, right. Well, in in uh, I guess my my uh, the principle would apply this way. I'd say, well, what would you what would a Christian woman do? Um, if her husband started to engage in some other type of sinful behavior, um, and it's kind of hard to find something that's morally comparable to a, a man now deciding to identify as a woman. But I mean, I, if I was to think of some other kind of sexually related sin, I would think of like, all right, what if her husband starts to now look at porn and believe looking at porn is morally permissible? How would she handle that? How would she handle her husband is now engaging in a sinful activity? And so whatever the answer would be, however she would handle that, like maybe she would go to her elders. She would she would pray and ask God to intervene. Maybe she would turn to his friends and ask them to perhaps give him wise counsel. Whatever that process would be, would be my answer to this woman who's facing mm-hmm. a situation where her husband is now ideating as, as a transgender. Mm-hmm. And so in, in other words, what, this seems to be the case is that this isn't really a question about sexuality per se. It's more about, um, uh, it's more of just a marital question, like a, mar- a marriage advice question. Mm. How do you handle a situation where your spouse is now engaging in sin? Mm. Well, whatever you would do is what I would suggest that this woman do in this unfortunate case where her husband is identifying as trans. Okay, so I uh, anticipate a, a concern here, and it's something that I've talked about and addressed to some degree, but I think for some people it may be uh, considered a kind of a gray area because what you said 
is what happens when a spouse is engaged in any kind of sinful behavior, which, of course, presumes that beginning to ideate as the opposite sex, uh, transgender, which means not just that you have gender dysphoria, but you're adopting either a look or the behaviors or whatever of the sex you're ideating as. Is that a fair distinction right there? Yeah. Yeah. So you have transgender, you have trans, you have gender dysphoria, like, right. uh, okay, that's, that's the, that's the discomfort. The response to the discomfort is to ideate as the opposite gender in order to alleviate the discomfort. And <clears throat> when you do that in visible ways, this is what transgenderism is. Um, and uh, dressing like and acting like and, and carrying on as if you were that opposite that opposite gender, okay? <clears throat> and this is your, your, your characterizing a sinful behavior, which I agree. But um, it might be helpful if you could go into a little more detail on why this is sinful. Because some people might say, look, they're psychologically confused, which it is a kind of confusion. Mm -hmm. um, there's no question. Certainly gender dysphoria, and I've characterized that as, as a confusion. We're taking it beyond dysphoria now discomfort. Mm -hmm. Now we're taking into an action area where one is leaving behind the, the, their, their, the gender that's appropriate for their sex and is now uh, ideating as the opposite gender. H how would you explain to somebody before God how that's inappropriate? Well, I would explain by talking about the um, how God has designed us as human beings. Uh, he's He's created male and female, and he's commanded that we maintain these distinctions between male and female. For example, in Deuteronomy 20, 22.5, yeah, uh, God, God says, um, uh, a man shall not put on a woman's clothing, and a woman shall not put on a man's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a command that's intended to maintain the distinction between the two sexes. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, a person who's now a man who's taking on um, the the role or the identity of a woman by virtue of how he dresses is considered mm -hmm. sin, according to that that passage. Mm -hmm. We see the same thing in First uh, Corinthians six nine, where it says, "Do not be deceived. Uh, the following people will not inherit the kingdom of God." It gives a list, a long list of people, mm -hmm. and uh, two of them are um, uh, the effeminate. And homosexuals. Now, the, the word effeminate comes from the Greek word malakoi, which literally means soft men or soft male. And this is a reference to men in the first century who took on the role or took on the appearance of a woman by virtue of their dress, their mannerisms, their makeup, or sometimes even through castration. Mm. So we see both in Old and New Testaments, uh, uh, whenever someone tries to take on the role of the opposite sex by virtue of their dress or their mannerisms, mm. uh, the Bible condemns it as sin. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, I mean that that that's the foundation for why we would say it's inappropriate is because the Bible condemns it as sin. Maybe a clarification is helpful too. I mean, what is appropriate dress or manner or uh, appearance? that distinguishes the sexes seems to be culturally specific. Obviously, there was mm -hmm. a time when women didn't wear pants, and now they right. do, cultures. So so when a woman wears pants now, she's not looking mm -hmm. like a man 
because the cultural things have changed a little bit. But uh, and all same thing with long hair, you know, and uh, you know, men had short hair, women had long hair, and then if a guy had longer hair, this back in the sixties, he looked like a girl, you know, and that was. Right. Then the trends change, and this doesn't mean that the that the, the the rules are subjective. It means that they are relative to the appropriate circumstances, which is true for all morality. That's not relativism; that's objectivism. Right. Under one given set of circumstances, there's an objective right or wrong regarding that. But uh, since those circumstances change, what I mean, men wear dresses in Scotland; they're called kilts, but right. women don't wear kilts. Men wear kilts, so it's male clothing, and there's no confusion with that kind of dressing between the male and the female. Just wanted to make that clear. I don't know if you wanted to add anything more to that, but I think sometimes people get a little confused about that important no, distinction yeah. or detail. Yeah, no, your your point is is correct and, and well well uh, communicated. I typically will add um, a couple of comments when I when I bring up those passages. And I, I try to make sure that people understand that the Bible isn't calling us to adopt, let's say, because we live in America, we're not, the Bible's not calling us to adopt American cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. Okay. Like uh, we don't take our, our cues from culture about, you know, um, about what constitutes legitimate ways of, uh, be, of, of identifying. Like an and so for example, boys can't wear pink. Yeah, because right. pink is a girl's color kind of thing. Sure. That's a constructed social variation that it has no moral consequence to it. Right, right. So, yeah, so if you're a boy and, uh, for example, if you don't like, um, you know, video games and football and, and blowing things up, like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, if, if if you prefer ballet or art, you're, you're no less a guy, you're no less masculine, you're no less a male, right? And, and vice versa, or another way, it's like if you're a woman – or your girl, and you don't like pink, or you know, listening to Taylor Swift, or you know, shopping. Like it's okay. You're you're no less a girl. You're 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 just as much a girl as any other girl, mm -hmm. right? So we're not we don't take our cues from from American culture and the stereotypes that are present to define us. The issue isn't about that. The issue the Bible's making is what do you believe yourself to be? Do you believe yourself to be a man or a woman? That's the key mm -hmm. issue, mm -hmm. and it's not trying to tell you to adopt the cultural stereotypes that are associated with masculinity and femininity. Mm -hmm. But that's but that's the lie the culture's trying to sell. Is if you're a girl and you don't like pink and dresses, you must be transgender. Mm -hmm. uh, this and is, so that, that that's it, it's so ironic. It just occurred to me, Alan, now, because this is a kind of a, a a twisting and a distortion of an error of more conservative people in the past. You know, it's like if you if you like, um, you know, girlish enterprises, what is it culturally associated with girlish enterprises, then you are – you're a sissy if you're a boy. You're a right. sissy, right? Yeah. And so they make that connection, which was abuse. Mm -hmm. That would be my view of it. And this is the point you're making. These are the right. wrong – these are the wrong criteria for identifying – oneself with one's sex, okay? Um, the irony is that that's precisely what's going on in our culture now. People are mm -hmm. saying if boys like those effete kinds of enterprises, then they must be 
transgender. It's the mm-hmm. first time that this thought occurred to me, and it was stimulated by your comment there. But it it is so odd how these things change the way they change. And um, that which was condemned as evil becomes the very thing that now is pushed by the same people that were condemning. Yeah, so, and it, it- and what's crazy about it is it's stereotypes. It's stereotypes of masculinity and femininity that are created as the standard. So if a girl, kind of like what you're talking about, if a girl doesn't like pink and dresses, right? Well, then she's, oh, you must be transgender. Mm-hmm. So the standard by which they assess it is this culturally arbitrary thing, a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And then when that girl transitions, which you know tries to go through gender confirmation, she transitions towards other stereotypes, the male stereotypes, yeah. right? She cuts her hair short. She wears pants and grows a and beard. Same thing with, right. And same thing with the guy. You know, a guy will like, oh, you know, he'll, he'll get uh, plastic surgery done to his face. He'll get breast implants. He'll put on a dress. I mean, look at Bruce Jenner, right? Yeah. He now identifies as Caitlyn Jenner. And, he, you know, he comes on stage he's wearing this dress. He's got long mm-hmm. hair. So, so – the, the, what society has done is it's elevated cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity as the standard. Mm-hmm. And then the direction that that person who's transgender goes towards is another set of cultural stereotypes of the opposite sex. Yeah, and many so the cases— whole, The whole thing is based on stereotypes, yeah. which is and it's not ridiculous. Just, it's not just um, getting a new wardrobe. There's surgery that's involved many times. Which is especially problematic for women. Um, there is a, a um, because that's where the surgery is done. Women have their breasts removed, and uh, there 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 are bl- uh, hormone blocking medications that can change the rest of that person's life. Uh, can you say something? It's, we're just kind of free rolling here a little bit. I think it's a, a helpful conversation. I so can you say a, 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 something about the trend of many? Because let me back up and put it this way: there, there is uh, the history of dysphoria has been characteristically you have dysphoria among males. It's where it shows up principally historically that were young, two, three, four, five years old. Okay, and uh, very little gender dysphoria happening with females. Now it's flipped; it's massively the females, and it's not when they're young. It's when they're in uh, in uh, adolescence, and this is coming up, and so you have these massive numbers of people that are identifying as transgender. This looks like, as Abigail Schreier has called it, a, uh, a social contagion. It's a fad, and even Bill Maher sees this, you know, mm-hmm. and he's no conservative, no Christian, but nevertheless, he sees this, um, and what what happens is. What happens to those people who have made major changes based on a fad that they is no longer a fad or the fad that they personally outgrow? Mm-hmm. And so now we've got this group of people which the left denies even exists really in any significant numbers um, that are sorry about the irreparable damage that they've done to their own bodies, which is the title of. Abigail Schreier's book, I think, Irreparable. Yeah, Irreversible. Irreversible Damage. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, you mean in terms of the numbers cause wise, for that? Numbers wise and, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the numbers exactly. I, that's not an area that I've studied. Um, and 
what is the cause of the trend, this high trend amongst girls? Also, I would say I'm not certain of, although I've read a number of studies that seem to suggest that um, women, but I mean, girls in general, um, uh, ha- are wired in such a way where they're much more mindful of connecting with people around them than guys typically are. Mm-hmm. And as a result, uh, when they're in high school or when they're going through puberty, I mean, not only do you have all of the awkwardness of puberty and the hormones and all the surges and stuff that's going through your body, which in itself is a challenge. Right. But now you have, but you, but you also have this wiring of, of girls having this capacity, which isn't a, a negative, it's actually a gift. Yeah, and it's not a stereotype be, either. It's a description of the physiology of females, you know, and the psychology of females as such. That's right. That's right. They're saying that these the girls are wired in this way where they're far more mindful of those around them. And combined with social media and, uh, and, and the pressures that girls face today has created this sort of perfect storm where women are now – girl, these girls are now um, uh, being – are more susceptible to uh, these ideas of transgenderism. So mm-hmm. in that case, yeah, it would be more of a – there's this social contagion component of it, mm-hmm. which is not to say that all of it is a social contagion. Correct. Because I think there is legitimacy to um, uh, gender dysphoria as a result of other factors, sure, abuse sure. and other things. Well, well, but a large portion of this increase, that this huge wave that we're seeing, I think can be, can, can be explained by these factors. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I've just been reading a little bit of that Recently, I, I wouldn't say that this is conclusive, but that's right. what some of the scholars are suggesting. And by the way, they're not; these aren't even Christian scholars who are saying this. These mm-hmm. are just psychologists and psychiatrists who are doing research into the to this trend. So let's let's bring it around to kind of um, where where I was talking about last week, and where I kind of kicked off about the remarks of Alistair Begg. Um, he actually talked, actually, he talked about a transgender person being married. And um, <clears throat> and we talked about this as a team. I made some comments about it last week. Um, and people who are transgender in a marriage ceremony, there's an ambiguity there, right? Because you're yeah. not really sure what the sexes happen to be. It's a, just a general characterization. So it may be that a... Um, I'm trying to avoid the phrase transgender wedding because I know you and Amy don't care for that <laughs> phrase. So, um, but for lack of a better one, a wedding in which someone is transgender, it's not yeah. clear whether this is a same sex wedding or not. It could be a, a transgender man and a, and, a, and, a, and a male, another male. So you, but mm-hmm. you end up with two grooms with regards to the appearances of the wedding. Which strikes right. me as odd. And you also talked right. about transgender, that whole ideation. Pursuing that is a wrong course of action. It's a sinful course of action. And um and so even if you in I mean so even in, in my mind, it's even if you have two two sexual males standing there, I'm sorry, a sexual male and a sexual female see how confusing this gets. Yeah. You have a male and a female standing at the altar. It still could mm-hmm. look like two females or two males. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I know you're counseling about going to a gay wedding. We right. talked about that in the past uh, on the air, and you and I have just, I think I discussed it last week. Um, 
we can't celebrate something that's wrong like that. What about, let's say, a, a wedding in which somebody is a transgender in which you it appears that two of the same sex are standing at the altar, um, even though there is a male and a female standing right. at the altar. Right. Well, the the rationale behind why I would not counsel someone to attend a same-sex wedding is because that a, a wedding is a very particular type of event. And the purpose of the wedding is to, for, for those who are attending, uh, is to celebrate what's occurring at the altar. And so, uh, you know, I, I can't attend an event where its sole purpose is to celebrate a man marrying another man. Well, if that's the purpose of attending a wedding is to participate in the celebration of the thing happening at the altar, then if a man is marrying a transgender man, which would mean a biological woman, mm -hmm. what is happening at the altar is this, uh, I forgot, you used a word one time, I forgot, uh, presuming distortion, a, corruption. No, no, no. It's a, it's like a presumption of a man and a man marrying. Oh yeah. Right. It, it's, they're, 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 um, positioning them. They're, they're positioning what's happening at the altar as a man marrying a man. Right. Yeah. I understand it is technically a female, but it's positioned as or presented as two men marrying. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand how I could in good conscience attend an event whose purpose is to celebrate this man marrying another man, even though it's a woman, but it's, it's positioned as if two men are marrying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I, I wouldn't. So in other words, my, my reason for not attending a wedding where a man's marrying a transgender male is not because the transgender person is pursuing um, satisfying transgender ideation because I mean, that's just their own in, individual sin. Mm -hmm. It's that the event is now, proposing to be two men marrying and I can't I can't celebrate that. So in a sense the principle of consistency is still in play here because the reason that you would not go to a gay wedding turns out to be the very same reason that you would not attend a trans <laughs> Amy's laughing at me now cuz I'm about to say a, trans wedding but we know what we're talking about here. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yes, yes. okay. And uh, so does Amy. That's why she's laughing at me. So um, we're, we're not trying to create a new category of wedding here. We already right. have too many categories. But That's nevertheless, right. these are circumstances <clears throat> that we encounter. But there your principle of consistency is still holding true. It's still applied consistently in both yes. cases. It's I can't celebrate what's happening here. I right. can't act like we are um, solemnizing before God, this particular union. Mm -hmm. It is not what God wants. And so, therefore, right. I cannot celebrate it. That's basically what's going on here. That's right. And, uh, uh, I mean, what I've suggested in the past in terms of counsel to others is uh, to, to, de to decline attending such uh, an event. Uh, but... In, in the process of that conversation, when you're when you're turning down that event, let's just say they've they've come to you and it's in person or something like that, and they're asking you, and you're you're like, I can't I can't go to this. You might express your reasoning or rationale, whatever it might be, but obviously that's going to be a a blow to your relationship with this person who's mm -hmm. either um, 
identifies as a gay man or a transgender person, whatever it might be. Okay. And just get and back recognize- a little bit to the comment you were making earlier about how far do you go to save the relationship. So go ahead. That's yeah. right. That's right. So I, I acknowledge that this will this will be a blow. It will cause damage to the relationship. And so at that moment when you're declining, what I counsel people to do is schedule at that moment um, a time sometime after the wedding, supposed wedding, <laughs> that you and your spouse or you or just you will will come over for for dinner. Okay. So let's just say um you ask them, hey, well, are you going on a honeymoon? They're like, yeah, we're gonna go on a honeymoon. We're coming back uh, you know, in February, February 10th. You say, okay, great. Hey, on February 20th, are you are you free? Can I come over on February 20th and just, you know, hang out with you guys then and you know have dinner for dinner. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I suggest that because it's a, it's a clear indication or it's a signal to the other person or the couple that you're still intending to have a relationship. Like you still care about them. You still want this relationship to continue. And so that's just a way to kind of reach out and, and demonstrate that mm-hmm. by at that moment, uh, making that plan. Mm-hmm. And that way, at least, you know, that couple who, you know, is thinking to themselves, okay, we're at our wedding and, you know, Alan's not there and, you know, we're upset about that. At least they know in the back of their mind, hey, Alan's going to come over, you know, in a couple of weeks and, you know, we get to see him then or something like that. So. Yeah. Who, who notices who didn't show up at a wedding, right? You know, I mean, unless <laughs> it's the, 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 the groom or the bride or maybe the best man. But right, right, um, yeah. Uh, what this this principle now that you're talking about here is one you've voiced frequently on this issue, and that's the principle of truth and compassion. Truth and compassion. We read in John chapter one about Jesus, uh, mm-hmm. the the God man coming down full of grace and truth. And so right. those things were balanced in his life. And this is the same concept, truth and compassion. So we hold the line with regards to truth and not celebrate what we can't before God properly celebrate. But that doesn't mean we're cutting off relationship. Now we're doing something else. And I think this is where Alistair Begg ran into a lot of problems in his own mind. I'm not going to, you know, rework all of those issues, but in his own mind, that it was appropriate. Truth and compassion were both important. But the way that one shows compassion in his mind was different than what a lot of other people, including us at SCR, think is appropriate. There are other alternatives to show compassion. So you can keep that in balance without at least appearing to condone or to celebrate um, this uh, this relationship that you in this event that you can't actually celebrate. Uh, Alan, thank you. This is uh, I thought we talked for ten minutes. We talked for almost forty. So that's good. This has been solid stuff. And uh, as usual, I'm glad I have such a wonderfully deep bench with you and all the rest that I can draw from. And uh, wanted to thank you for your time here. Yeah, anytime, Greg. All right. That's Alan Schleeman from Stand to Reason, and uh, let's take a break, Amos, and uh, we'll come back for calls and maybe some other comments. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics from bioethics gender issues in science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. 
Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Just a reminder about um, reality, student apologetics conferences. I'm looking for my numbers here. We've just blown out the stops in Texas. We got 33, 30 tickets left in Texas. We got three and a half weeks before our event. Now, there is overflow for 400. So if you still haven't signed up, you're welcome to do that. You're just going to be in the overflow room. But that's pretty cool, too. But uh, we are uh, we are thrilled at the response um, in Philadelphia, we're at 800 plus some change. We got 1100 that we take. That's seven weeks out. And so that looks like that venue is going to fill up, too. If you want to go to either events, uh, either of those two events and the dates for them, Texas, February 23 and 24. This is North Dallas. All right. And Philly. That's March 22nd and 23rd. And if you, want to, if you want to go to the Augusta, Georgia, you can do that April 19 and 20. But we don't have numbers on those yet. But we are really moving hard on the other venues. And so I'm just saying, OK, go to realityapologetics.com and sign up. Love to have you there. We just want to fill that up. And by the way, the church that Cottonwood Creek that we were at last year that is almost filled up now, they've actually expanded that church Added more seats, knocked out some walls, and we're still filling it up. So that's all really good news. I want to say something as a—is excursus the right word? I'm just kind of a appendage. I'm adding to something I said last week about the Alistair Begg issue because there's a lot that's taken place. And Alistair Begg had described in September during a sermon how he— had recommended to a grandmother who who has made her co- views known about um, homosexuality to her granddaughter, who is in a who who is in a for lack of a better word a transgender marriage. I don't know what the nature of that is, but that was the word that was used. But I think in principle, this has been 
understood to apply even to same-sex marriages. And he said, well, if they know that you are against homosexuality, you love Jesus, you follow Jesus, you're against homosexuality, you can't do anything to encourage or approve of what they're doing. If they know all that, then go to the wedding and bring a gift. And this will be a sign of your love for them that could build a bridge to them. Okay? Now, there's been a bit of a firestorm that's resulted from that. What was said in September, it's now trickled into the mainstream, and now it's everybody's talking about it. And my comments last week were to say two things, essentially. Um, actually, three things. The first thing is, I, I don't think that his counsel was good counsel. And Alan's comments earlier give you a little understanding about why that's the case. In fact, I downloaded uh, from a number of years ago uh, a transcript of when uh, John Piper was asked the same question. And he gave about five reasons why a Christian should not attend a same-sex wedding. And he's fully, fully committed to the whole idea of loving those that are different and extending love and the grace of God, etc., as Alistair Begg is. Uh, but he comes to a different conclusion about how to apply that principle. I wish, actually, the two of them had talked. I, maybe they have. But what concerns me, here's what I said last week. I, I said, I think he gave bad advice. Secondly, I think the reason for the advice was not a good one. Okay? In general, of course, we want to show love, but this isn't the best way to show love to a transgender or a same uh, homosexual person. Okay? Um, but the takeaway was simply this. If you have a good person— Say, saying something foolish, it doesn't make that good person a fool. It just says, means they said something foolish. I think it was foolish what he offered. But he's no fool. He's still a good man. What I've concerned with is what I've seen since then, and now I can't go on, like, my feed for YouTube, and I want to check out some fishing thing, and there's all these thumbnails with all these people talking about Alistair Begg. And uh, he got canceled from a radio network, which is the right word. They canceled him. Um, apparently, he was going to attend a, a big shepherding conference, and he's been disinvited from that. And again, I don't want to get in details about these different individuals, because that's not the point. I don't want any further scorn to be heaped on anyone, frankly. There was one pastor who's a apparently a prominent YouTuber, who also said, I'm not going to listen to anything else that Alistair Begg teaches, like ever. I'm done listening to him. Really? After, what, 30 to 40 years of effective service, and even within the last year, giving a talk on campus somewhere where he was, where he was, uh, um, I'm just looking for it right here, where, where he was chastised by the crowd and demonstrated against for what he was teaching against Christianity. I'm sorry, against uh, same-sex relations, et cetera, et cetera, and same-sex weddings and all that other stuff. And that was just within the last year, and, and now all of a sudden people are coming unglued about this. And there's a, there's a, a new element being added now. It is not just a matter of weighing in saying, I think the advice is not good advice. That was what I said. That's what Alan would say. 
And some did say that. I mean, that, of course, that's all contained in that. But what people are seem to be adding to it is that he's no longer a good man, to put it simply. He ought to repent from his sin. Now, I, I haven't heard anybody say, cancel this guy, but, I, but he is being canceled. Someone said, no, he's not being canceled. He's still there as the pastor of Parkside Church. Well, pff, yes, that doesn't mean he's not being canceled by other Christians. And for what? And so this is where I want to try to—I want to be as careful as I can, because on the one hand, I have a certain understanding of the biblical teaching, which is exactly the same understanding as Alistair Begg has, and everyone who's raised a criticism. But I have a different uh, application of one aspect of biblical teaching— that is, how do we love people with whom we disagree, who are in sin, and who are haters of us after a certain fashion? They don't love the truth, they hate the truth. And I'm not using the word hate here in a woke sense, I'm using the word hate in a biblical sense. And so and, and so, uh, what Alistair said, and I heard his response, some people say, well, he's doubled down. He didn't double down. He didn't make it worse. He just won't recant, and he's giving clarification of his point. And, uh, and, 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 and we are to love our enemies, is his point, which is true. Good theology. So how do we best love our enemies in this circumstance? And um, one of the things that he said in response— is that look, he was speaking to a very specific situation involving specific people, and his main concern was the preservation of a relationship between a grandmother and her granddaughter. Okay? And he says, look, in other situations, maybe I'd give other advice. I, I even heard him say, even members of my own team disagree with me. So he's making the point that this is kind of a judgment call that individuals have to make. And I... I being charitable to him, I think he's doing the best he can. Now, again, I disagree with the decision. These issues need need to be nuanced. Um, keep in mind, he is not the product of American fundamentalism, but of British evangelicalism. That's different. He's going to have a different take on things after a fashion uh, when it comes to this kind of application. And that's one thing that people like about him. He's not a fundy. He's bred. He sounds better, sounds smarter, and he's got a little different perspective on things. Generally, that's not a vice, but a virtue. Now, again, I'm not trying to approve of his stance, but all what I'm saying is all it is is a stance. Okay, and by the way, and, and I mean, right now there's it's like everywhere. He must repent. Maybe he should step down. Really. And so my general feeling now is this is a bit much. There are wolves in our midst. There are people who I could name now that virtually every single one of you listening would recognize the name, who denies original sin. There are people also who I could name now who you would recognize the name. And these are friends of mine. They're colleagues who are taking exception with biblical inerrancy. Well, where's the human cry about this? It's not there. Instead, there's 
all of this stuff going on regarding this comment. In fact, if notables had not weighed in, and maybe I'd be one of them, but I gave different counsel about how to approach this, a person who makes a bad, a foolish statement is still a good person. That was my view. Even good people make foolish statements. I make foolish statements. If you count me as a good person, okay, I'm, that's me. And I'm going to make lots more foolish statements, I'm sure, in the future. More as as I get, the older I get, the dumber I'm going to get, all right? All right, that doesn't cancel out everything I've done in the past, nor all the good I can even offer now, as long as most people are, have the capability of separating the meat from the bones. Somebody said, oh, I'm not listening to Cocoa anymore. I say, really? Gee, I'm sorry to hear that. Do we disagree on this? Yeah, we disagree. Maybe I'm wrong. A lot of people think, hey, maybe people close to me think I'm wrong about things. Okay, maybe I am. But does that cancel out everything? And I just think this is built to a momentum. And frankly, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I just wanted to add this comment now. I wanted to add these thoughts right now to kind of put it this next step into perspective, because now the takeaway isn't just, well, look at a, a good, good persons. Good people say foolish things, but they're still good people. Obviously good people. Now I'm concerned about something else. A good person who says something foolish, who's being treated like a wolf in some sense, and not like a shepherd. He is a shepherd. He's a good one. So, this is where it's important for us as followers of Christ, as Christians, uh, to take a deep breath, settle down, and not, in a certain sense, make a mountain out of a molehill. This is not a signal that Alistair Begg is going south on critical issues. There is no reason to expect it. It isn't a logical slippery slope. It's not a causal slippery slope. It's no slippery slope of any kind. It is just a difference of opinion. Now, I, I think it's a serious difference. I wouldn't give that counsel. Obviously, I keep saying this, but I, I, I think we have to keep it in proportion. And a couple of, uh, maybe a month and a half or so ago, I had Justin Brierley on talking about his most recent book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, and it chronicles all of the people who are in culture, especially British culture, who are atheists or agnostics that are leaning towards Christianity or becoming Christians because Christianity seems to be offering something that atheism can't offer. And at the end, he talks about, Justin talks about how to take advantage of this trend and he mentions a couple of things. I've said this before. One is keep Christianity weird. <laughs> Don't cease being Christian. Don't try to be like the culture and change our ideas and our views. And by the way, this comes from uh, Douglas Murray, who is talking about Christians stay weird, because that's what's attractive and appealing about. Don't try to be like us. But then he also says... Um, that we need to create a community that counters cancel culture. In other words, don't overreact. Cancel culture is without grace and without charity. We are Christians, 
even when there's a problem in our midst, even when someone misspeaks or maybe has a view that we strongly disagree with, that doesn't mean they're off the reservation. He writes, whatever the church of the next generation looks like, it must always be a place of grace where messy people learn to get along with other messed up people. People are hungry for meaning, but they are also hungry for a community where they can explore that meaning with others. All right? Don't become the world like the world in this regard. He goes on to say the church needs to be a place of countercultural grace in a polarized, moralistic, and unforgiving society. Grace is the antidote to cancel culture, and people are desperate for it. And I think more of that is needed in this discussion. Many have been gracious, but I haven't heard anybody say, okay, he made a mistake. We disagree with good reason, but he's not a bad guy. We don't have to worry about this guy. The world, His world is not moving in another direction, all right? This guy's one of us. He's a brother in Christ. We love him. Maybe we'll pray for him so he changes his mind, but if he doesn't change his mind, we still love him. He's still one of us. He is a shepherd. He is not a wolf. That's my point. That's my takeaway. And that's the end of my conversation about this because I don't want to add more fuel to the fire. And I, I, I would that other Christian leaders would not add more fuel as well. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.